We now begin chapter 8, which is called Unsupported and Unsupportive Consciousness. So uh, those are two similar words. So this is representing two different uh, ways that uh, the Buddha spoke about uh, consciousness in the uh, uh, in the suttas. So unsupported, uh, so that consciousness not having a place to land, or unsupportive, uh, that kind of uh, consciousness or awareness on uh, which things, uh, on which uh, perceptions and and uh, uh, nama rupa and the aspects of body and mind cannot land. So it's um, both of those ways of expression are used uh, in uh, in relationship to consciousness or, or vijnana. One of the ways in which the Buddha characterized the quality of awareness was to present it as a form of consciousness, vijnana. This represents a unique usage of the term. Customarily, vijnana, quote-unquote, only refers to the conditioned activity of the six senses. However, we also find that the Buddha gives us some adjectives with which to describe it when the term is used in this unique way. Vinyanang anirasanang anantang sabato pabang, consciousness that is signless, boundless, or luminous, is one translation of this expression. Now this um, uh, is uh, one of the, the the areas of dhamma that people are often asking about, um, because we uh, in in English we use the words mind, consciousness, and uh, awareness very very loosely. And uh, so, and then when people give teachings or, or uh, say translate the suttas or, or study them, then they they use these words in in slightly different ways. And so, um, the uh, when the people ask, well, what is the difference between citta and vijnana or mind? You know, what is heart? What is mind? And and so on. So it's almost invariably the case that you need to sort of look closely at the at the text, see how the word is being used, and and uh, sort of come from that sense of okay what, what what's it talking about here or what the uh, what's the um the thing that's being discussed or described and and sort of uh, work out how the terms are being used from the from the context so uh, this uh, uh particular term vijnana um is uh, uh as, I, as it says here in this opening paragraph it's most commonly not used in this way uh, uh, as a sort of um, a liberated kind of uh, awareness or a, uh, a transcendent kind of awareness. But in this particular chapter, it's uh, so ad- addressing primarily the use of, of vijnana or consciousness when it, when it is used in that kind of a way. And so that's um, the, the whole theme of this particular chapter is talking about the uh, consciousness uh, uh, as it's uh, re- uh, represented in rare instances in the uh, in the suttas, but um, uh, uh, in ways that are very significant in terms of, of liberation and the uh, these teachings on on nibbana. It almost goes without saying that there is controversy or controversy. <laughs> Interesting. There's there's controversy or controversy about how you pronounce the word controversy or controversy. 
As to the precise meaning of this enigmatic phrase, it appears in only a couple of places in the canon, and these are both of these have been mentioned. Uh, Majima Nikaya, Middle Length Discourses, Sutta Number Forty Nine. That's the invitation to the Brahma, where the Buddha's talking with the the Brahma God that used to be his uh, teacher in a previous life, Baka, the Brahma. And then in uh, the Kevada Sutta, which is the eleventh Sutta in the Diga Nikaya, the Long Discourses. However, the constellation of meanings of the individual words is small enough to give us a reasonably clear idea of what the Buddha was pointing at. Firstly, we must assume that he is using vijnana, quote-unquote, in a broader way than it is usually meant. The Buddha avoided the nitpicking pedantry of so many philosophers contemporary with him, and present age uh, as well, and opted for a more broad-brush colloquial style, geared to particular listeners in a language which they could understand, as I mentioned up in the way back in chapter one. Thus, vijnana here can be assumed to mean knowing, but not the partial fragmented discriminative vi, knowing, jnana. So the, the word vijnana is made up of two parts, vi, meaning fragmented or partial or discriminative, and jnana, knowing. Um, <coughs> but not the partial fragmented discriminative knowing which the word usually implies. Instead, it must mean a knowing of a primordial, transcendent nature. Otherwise, the passage which contains it would be self-contradictory. Which means to say, if, that, if the vijnana in that, these the suttas, if the, the usage of that word in that particular phrase, if it didn't mean a transcendent kind of awareness or the awareness of the, the uh, liberated mind, the mind of the arahant, then the passage wouldn't make any sense. It, it's like it would be self-contradictory. Like it, it, couldn't, it wouldn't have a, a, a meaning that was, uh, uh, say, uh, fitting with the, with the, the flow of the, the, uh, the narrative. Secondly, anidasanang, that's the second word, is a fairly straightforward word which means uh, first syllable a means not, non or without. Nidasanang means indicative, visible, manifestative, or something that's apparent, you can see it, you can know it. So a nidasanang, that is to say invisible or empty, featureless, unmanifest. Or uh, Bhikkhu Nyanananda has the, the word non-manifestative. And he might have invented that word himself. But uh, it's a good word. It's very long. But uh, non-manifestative, something which doesn't manifest. It doesn't stand out and appear. Then Anantang is also a straightforward term meaning infinite or limitless. A meaning, meaning a negative and uh, Antang having a, a boundary. So without a boundary. The final phrase, Sabato Pabang, is a little trickier. Here is Bhikkhu Bodhi's comment from note 513 to the Majjhima Nikaya. So that's the note to Sutta number 49. The ancient commentary offers three explanations of the phrase Sabato Pabang. One, completely possessed of splendor, Pabha. So that also means light. Uh, so like... Um, Papasarajita is the radiant mind, or, or the, say, um, the 
my former teacher, Ajahn Pabakaro, Pabakaro, one, one who is the maker of light, the Pabha is light or splendor. Two, second meaning, possessing being, uh, which comes from the Pali word Pabhutang, possessing being everywhere. And three, a ford, like a, 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 narrow, uh, a shallow part of a river, which is where you can cross by walking. Uh, a ford, Pabhang, accessible from all sides, i.e. through any of the 38 meditation objects. And then Bhikkhu Bodhi's uh, comment on this is, only the first of these seems to have any linguistic legitimacy. So the um, so he feels that the uh, the uh, accurate meaning of sabatopabang is completely possessed of splendor, um, and uh, sabato also means uh, uh, not f- it can mean fully or, or all so so all luminous or radiant in all directions. Um, and the other ones he feels are um, what they call folk etymology, where the, you sort of you, you can come up with your own invented meaning because of of it, but he doesn't feel that that's uh, the genuine source of, of those words, uh, that doesn't come from meaning a, a ford in a river and such like. Or from pabuta, meaning uh, uh, being, or that which is born. It is perhaps also significant that both of the instances where this phrase is used by the Buddha are in passages involving the demonstration of his superiority over the Brahma gods. It's thus conceivable that the phraseology derives from some spiritual or mythological principle dear to the Brahmins, and which the Buddha is employing to expand the familiar meaning, or to turn it around. As we saw in chapter 2, this was a common source of the Buddha's choice of words and metaphorical images. So chapter 2 was talking about the Buddha using um, uh, the putting out of a, a fire the um, uh, in the fire sermon um, the uh, rather than the uh, generating the fire of tapas or austerity. Uh, he uh, talking about letting the fires go out or, put, or extinguishing the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion, um, and uh, on, uh, and so using that rather than the image of generating tapas or heat, uh, the uh, idea of nibbana or coolness as a spiritual goal. So this was this was one of the uh, theories of Lumpur Pasanno on this. Uh, he he pointed out that. It's curious that this this particular phrase vinyanang anidasanang anantang sabatopabang, it's only uh, appears in these suttas where the Buddha is talking to a Brahma god, and so his uh, it was his uh, his uh, sort of noting of this and saying yeah I think it's probably got something to do with a, a, a passage from Brahminical teachings uh, and uh, I've mentioned this a couple of times not not just with this passage but if you remember the discourse to Bahia. Uh, when he says, in the scene there is only the scene, in the herd there is only the herd. That seems to be directly related to the um, Brihad Aranyika Upanishad. Uh, and it seems like that Bahia, uh, which means uh, a yogi who wears uh, clothing, robes made of bark, tree bark, um, that uh, that Bahia's name, Bahia Daruchiriya, one who is uh, a, a bark-wearing ascetic called Bahia, and and also the connection with that um, that particular Upanishad, and then the phraseology that the Buddha uses to speak to him seems to come directly from that, uh, or related to that, the, the words of that Upanishad. If you follow that? Some of you weren't here before when we were talking about that. So if in the, the discourse to Bahia, when the Buddha says, in the scene there is only the scene, in the herd there is only the herd, in the sense there is only the sense, 
in the cognized there is only the cognized and see if I can find it <laughs> uh, of course you can never find it when you need it Okay, I'm looking, resort to the index, excuse me for a moment. About here. So the, um, <clears throat> so by here he said, in the scene there is only the scene, in the herd there is only the herd, in the sense there is only the sensed, in the cognized, there is only the cognized. Thus, by here, this by here is how you should train yourself. When by here there is for you in the scene only the scene, in the heard only the heard, in the sensed only the sensed, in the cognized only the cognized, then by here there is no you, quote unquote, in connection with that. There's no subject that is uh, the knower of those objects. When by here there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. And when by here there is no you there, then by here, yeah, you can find yourself neither here nor there nor in between the two. So, um, uh, if the uh, when the mind reflects on the senses in that way, then uh, there is uh, a letting go of the the nature of uh, the object. Seeing the object is empty, that rather than that, there's a thing there. There's a clock there. There's well, there's seeing, but the mind names it as a clock. Um, and then uh, seeing that the the subject also me seeing a clock rather well there's seeing but then saying that there's a me who's the seer is also an assumption so it's a letting go of the subject and the object and um, as he says when you when there is no you there you uh, then by here you are neither here nor there nor in between the two this just this is the end of suffering so that bears close resemblance to uh, the some words in the um, Brihad Aranyaka Upanishad, and so that uh, the um, uh, the uh, say theory or the idea is that probably the Buddha knew of those teachings and used that as a basis to give his own particular um, slant on that, um, uh, saying that uh, the uh, you know that in the Upanishad says you know it's the self that sees, it's the self that knows, it's the self that cognizes, and then the, the Buddha's pointing out well. No, you, that, that's the uh, the opposite is rather the case that there is seeing, there's hearing, there's sensing, cognizing, but you can't say that there's a, a any permanent I individual essence that is the the knower. So similarly, the Arjun Pasna's theory is that this particular passage, and we haven't managed, we we never managed to come across what part of the Upanishads or the Vedas that might have come from, but uh, it was his own particular theory, and I think it makes a lot of sense because it only appears in those dialogues with with. Uh, uh, when there's a, the Buddha speaking with a Brahma god. The longer of the two versions of this phrase comes at the end of a colorful and lengthy teaching tale recounted by the Buddha in the Kevada Sutta, which is a Diga Nikaya, Long Discourses Sutta number 11. And I was mentioning this story uh, a few days ago, as you might remember. Uh, he tells of a monk in the mind of whom the question arises, I wonder where it is that the four great elements, earth, water, fire, and wind, 
cease without remainder. So where is it that the world comes to an end? In, in essence, is the way of rendering it. Where is it that, that the, the things of the world come to an end and finish? Being a skilled meditator, the bhikkhu in question enters a state of absorption and, quote, the path to the gods becomes open to him, unquote. He begins by putting his question to the first gods he meets, the retinue of the four heavenly kings, the guardians of the world. They demur, saying they do not know the answer, but the, the four kings themselves probably do. He should ask them. He does. They do not. And the search continues. He asks them, they don't know the answer, and he goes on uh, searching. Onward and upward, through the successive heavens he travels, continually being met with the same reply, we do not know, but you should try asking, and is referred to the next higher level in the celestial hierarchy. Patiently enduring the protracted process of following this cosmic chain of command, he finally arrives in the presence of the retinue uh, of Mahabrahma, so that the, the um, subjects, or the, 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 they live in the Brahma world, but they're not Mahabrahma uh, themselves. He puts the question to them. Once again, they fail to produce an answer, but they assure him that the great Brahma himself, should he deign to manifest, is certain to provide him with the resolution he seeks. Sure enough, before too long, he appears, and at this point, we are treated to a taste of the wry wit of the Buddha. So then this is a quotation from the Sutta, and this is uh, Morris Walsh's translation. Uh, his um, original, uh, his uh, his uh, translation of the Diganikaya was the first of the Theravada uh, canon that the wisdom publications put into print. So originally it was uh, the book was entitled Thus Have I Heard, but then after that they just changed it to the Long Discourses of the Buddha. So that's, uh, that's where you find it now. And that monk went up to him and said, Friend, where do the four great elements, earth, water, fire, air, cease without remainder? To which the great Brahma replied, Monk, I am Brahma, great Brahma, the conqueror, the unconquered, the all-seeing, all-powerful, the Lord, the maker and creator, the ruler, the appointer and orderer, father of all that have been and shall be. I should be like an octave lower. It's as much as I can manage today. Earlier in the morning, my voice is a bit deeper, so. A second time, the monk said, Friend, I did not ask if you are Brahma, great Brahma, and so on. I asked you where the four great elements cease without remainder. And a second time, the great Brahma replied as before. And a third time, the monk said, Friend, I did not ask you that. I asked you where the four great elements, earth, water, fire, air, cease without remainder. Then Kevada, the great Brahma, so then Kevada, the Buddha's talking to this lay uh, student, Kevada, then Kevada, the great Brahma, took that monk by the arm, led him aside and said, Monk, these devas believe there is nothing Brahma does not see. There is nothing he does not know. There is nothing he is unaware of. That is why I did not speak in front of them. But monk, I don't know where the four great elements cease without remainder. And therefore, monk, you have acted wrongly. You have acted incorrectly by going beyond the blessed Lord. And by, and by going in search of an answer to this question elsewhere. Now, monk, you should just go to the blessed Lord and put this question to him. And whatever he answers, accept it. And so whatever answer he gives, accept it. So that monk, as swiftly as a strong man might flex or unflex his arm, vanished from the Brahma world 
and appeared in my presence. He prostrated himself before me, then sat down to one side and said, Lord, where do the four great elements, the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the air element, cease without remainder? I replied, But monk, you should not ask your question in this way. Where do the four great elements, the earth element, water element, fire element, the air element, cease without remainder? Instead, this is how the question should have been put. Where do earth, water, fire and air no footing find? Where are long and short, small and great, fair and foul? Where are name and form wholly destroyed? And the answer is, where consciousness is signless, boundless, all luminous. That's vinyanang anirasanang anantang savato pabang. That's where earth, water, fire and air find no footing. Because they can't find a, a basis, they can't find a landing place. There both long and short, small and great, fair and foul, their name and form are wholly destroyed. With the cessation of consciousness, this is all destroyed. Thus the Lord spoke, and the householder Kevada delighted, rejoiced at his words. An alternative translation renders the final verses thus, and this is uh, Bhikkhu Nyanananda's translation, so uh, uh, he, uh, this is uh, again the, the, um, the monk who wrote uh, Concept and Reality and The Magic of the Mind, is a, um, and also more recently a book on dependent origination, and he did a whole uh, series of um, 33 lectures on Nibbana that have also been published as a collection, seven little volumes entitled The Mind Stilled. So Bhikkhu Nyanananda's translation is, Where do earth and water, fire and wind, long and short, fine and coarse, pleasant and unpleasant, no footing find? Where is it that name and form are held in check with no trace left? Consciousness which is non-manifestative, endless, lustrous on all sides. Here it is that earth and water, fire and wind, no footing find. Here again are long and short, subtle and gross, pleasant and unpleasant, name and form, all cut off without exceptions. When consciousness comes to cease, these are held in check herein. As mentioned earlier, there has been considerable debate over the centuries as to the real and precise meaning of these verses. Rather than try to put forth the definitive meaning that will settle the question forever, perhaps it's wiser just to consider the elements of the teaching that are presented here and let one's own understanding arise from that contemplation. That's also a kind of a Buddhist joke, the definitive meaning that will settle the question forever. Ha 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 since we know that human opinions are infinite in their variety and fluid in their qualities. Now, having said that, there are two semantic points which are important to understand in order to appreciate these verses better. Firstly, name and form, nama and rupa. These are nama-rupa in the Pali. They are two very common terms, and along with the way they have been translated here, they were used by the Buddha equally to refer to mentality and materiality respectfully, respectively. There is no one correct version of what Nama Rupa means, and often the most accurate interpretation involves the broad spread of meanings. Therefore, one will find numerous translations that use mind and body, materiality, mentality, name and form, 
all are correct in their own way. Usefully, and especially in the context of this, the discussion on the teaching to Bahia, just mentioned, in Professor Rhys Davids translation of the Diga Nikaya, uh, Professor Rhys Davids, he was the one who founded the Pali Text Society, around about the same time that Sir Edwin Arnold published The Light of Asia in the uh, late part of the 19th century. So the PTS was founded in 1881, and so uh, the, and the um, Light of Asia was published, I think, about 1879, something, 1870, yeah, 1879. So that was around about that time there was this sort of resurgence of, or surgence of, of interest in um, um, Buddhism in, uh, in this country, in England. So Professor Rhys David's translation of the Diganikaya, he quotes Neumann's rendering of Nama and Rupa as subject and object. So Nama as subject and Rupa as object. This is a helpful perspective since for some, the, quote, cessation of consciousness, unquote, or, quote, the destruction of mind and body, unquote, might seem like depressing or nihilistic phrases. Whereas the dissolution of subject-object dualities and the freedom ensuing from that sounds considerably more appealing. In this light, it's also worthy of note that the tangible qualities of the mind where no footing can be found for everyday dualisms include radiance and limitlessness hardly uninviting qualities either. So before going on any, any further, um, this was a, a passage and this particular little phrase, Vinyanang Anidasanang, Anantang Sabato Pabang, is a, a favorite of Lumpur Sumato's and um, in his, um, his book called um, Intuitive Awareness, that was put together by the former Samanira Amaranato, and then later included in the bigger collection by Wisdom publications called *The Sound of Silence*. Um, I did the introduction for that and uh, and uh, talked quite a bit of, in exactly the same way, really, um, about this phrase because Lumpur uses it several times during the course of uh, his talks in that uh, in that book. Uh, the the um, uh, intuitive awareness, I think, has eleven talks in it, and then the *Sound of Silence* has got a lot more. It's got about twenty-six, I think, altogether, uh, and so that. Um, Anyway, and it, uh, it was uh, very uh, commonly uh, appearing in the, those talks, and it was very, um, uh, very thoroughly used there. And particularly because when Lumpur Sumedha uses the word consciousness, he almost always means this kind of, of sort of uh, uh, liberated awareness. He doesn't use he doesn't use it in term in terms of um, as the uh, the activity of the six senses. But when he uses conscious, the word consciousness, the English word consciousness, then it's this kind of um, liberated uh, and uh, um, awakened awareness that he's he's meaning. So when he uh, when he's using consciousness, it's almost like Lumpur's kind of lifting it from the the usage that it has in it, in this sutta and and some other ones that will come later in this chapter. But um, that's also helpful to be aware because sometimes when you read Lumpur Sumedha's teachings. And, the, and you see this sort of consciousness, 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 and such like. I think, well, but vinyana is just one of the f- five aggregates. It's just a, it's just a conditioned thing. So how, why, why is, why is uh, Ajahn Sumedho making such a big deal of it? But uh, most of the time, sort of 90, 90%, 99% of the time, he's using it with this particular shade of meaning. So it's, uh, it's helpful uh, to uh, sort of 
reflect on this this uh, this particular phrase and also in this sutta the imagery that you have it's like that where these uh, where uh, the sense world body and mind and subject and object can't find a footing there's no they they, they can't grip it's like a teflon you know, non-stick there's no no traction they, they can't find a place to, to land they sort of there's no nothing, no thing to hold uh, hold them. So it's representing that kind of awareness, awakened awareness that um, nothing, no thing can stick to, no thing um, has any uh, intrusion upon, or can have no um, uh, say uh, dis- can can bring no disturbance or confusion or, or agitation or corruption to that, that that clarity of awareness. So this imagery of of earth, water, fire, and wind, and long and short, and coarse and fine, and pure and impure, they can't find a, a footing. They don't. They don't have uh, attraction. They don't. They can't get a grip um, in that that quality of of awareness. So it's helpful just as a uh, as a sort of footnote. I know many people don't read introductions or forewords to books. I I do. <laughs> I write them as well. So. So I'm not. This is not just shameless self promotion. You say you should read my introduction, but. In order to understand what Lumpur Sumedho is meaning, and his, particularly his usage of the word consciousness, it's, it's helpful to have these things in mind. And this particular sutta is one of the ones that strongly informed that. And many of you have heard uh, many of his Dhamma talks. It'll be uh, fam- that familiar sound, Vinyanang Anidasanang, the, the non-manifestative consciousness. Actually, yes. I'm puzzled about the uh, two sentences about consciousness here, and I wonder what your perspective is on that. So it starts with the non manifestive consciousness. Non manifestative. Manifestative consciousness. Yes. Um, which in this context makes sense. And then the last sentence is when consciousness ceases. So what kind of consciousness is that then? Because it seems to me, maybe I'm wrong, that the non-manifestative consciousness is that what is left when uh, uh, the elements you know, don't find the footing and there's no name and form. Well, I would say well spotted. Oh, okay. <laughs> Go forward three places. So because... I would say exactly the same thing because it's like when consciousness comes to cease, they are all held in check. So in a way, when um, the um, those things are, I mean, it is. I feel that the um, the words, and then later on, and just in a minute, we talk about the word cessation and niroda and and the, the formation of that word and the different shades of meaning that has because it's. It's also, um, I feel that it's it's a different kind of usage of the word vinyana there. That, that when consciousness comes to cease, it's yeah that when that discrimination stops when that doesn't have any purchase on the mind when the, the mind just sees in as in essence sees the suchness the tatata and emptiness of all perceptions and and mental formations and uh, that uh, <clears throat> that when that those discriminative consciousness discriminative aspects of perception cease. Then that uh, those they are held in check. There's this kind of uh, their thingness 
ceases the empty nature of them and the 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 solid nature of them comes to a, comes to an end it's one of those those passages that it's really useful to to reflect on and uh, to sort of pick it up bit by bit and uh, i personally i feel that both um uh, morris walsh's translation and also the bikunyan and under one they they both take a bit of working through and then also part of the explanation here is about Niroda and about the, what, where the word Niroda comes from and the shades of meaning that that has. Um, and also that uh, cessation of consciousness or destruction of mind and body, uh, that sounds a bit nihilistic. You know? And cessation of consciousness, you know, does, it, does it mean we just go unconscious? Well, it, it can't mean that. So what does it mean? And so that then, uh, there, there's also a uh, one of the the, the chapters of um, uh, Small Boat, Great Mountain is, but you translate it into German. It's called Cessation of Consciousness. I don't know how you put that into German, but it's about that sort of trying to to talk about what that kind of term, like Vinyana Niroda, and what that might mean in terms of a quality of liberation rather than switching off or or a uh, sort of a uh, a giving any kind of nihilistic tone, and so it's. Uh, I mean, I'll read it, uh, the the commentary here, but it's essentially that that cessation is the ending of the the particularity, the the thingness, uh, the ending of the false independence or the false uh, solidity of that thing. I would like to read it like this, but I wasn't sure whether. This is just tweaking it because that's my preferred rea- my preferred reality my alternative facts yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be topical um, well that's that's why it's it's useful to reflect on these to, to take and so I I do that I do this a lot in meditation I'll take a particular word or a little phrase and just bring it into the meditation just make them, them bring the mind to as much quietness as possible and say uh, okay. Ending of consciousness or cessation of consciousness. What is that? And just use the the sort of meditative space to explore the the associations of, of a particular term, and uh, and uh, and so I do that a lot uh, with the with the practice. And um, someone was asking me the other the other day, one of the in, uh, the interview groups, uh, what do you do in your meditation? <laughs> and uh, maybe it was the group you were in. Yeah, it was. There you go. So I do that a lot, and so I, this is really this this kind of passage is really useful, not maybe to take the whole thing, but just take little nuggets, just a, a group of three or four words or a, a single word, and just then you can you can measure it against your own experience and what what's taking shape, yeah, as it takes shape, and and looking at that, and and also sometimes what arises is, I haven't a clue. I have no idea what I have no idea what that's referring to. That's completely mysterious. Oh well, it's, it's useful to know that you don't know. There's even a word for that. You know. Ananya tanyasa mitindriya is knowing that you don't know. It's funny for me. It was like right. Uh, so when I try to define something, and then the next sentence takes that away. <laughs> well, maybe that's a teaching. That's a teaching in itself. Yeah. yeah. And then, 
And we also get to quote Wittgenstein on that later on. About because uh, when you get into this territory, as it says that the, this is this whole book is trying to create a bit of a roadmap for where the buses don't run. You know, it's a, you, you know you're getting into territory where the you know the, the the maps are a bit sketchy and the the way of describing things is well is it is it there or is it not is it such or is it empty yes <laughs> and or no depending on how you interpret it so you're you're knowing you're in a way you're picking it up knowing that the language is is um uh stretching to uh, to encompass the uh, meaning and what's being what's being talked about but let me carry on and uh, talk about Nirodha. So the second point is the use of the word Nirodha. In the above quoted sutta, the verb variously translated as destroyed, quote-unquote, cut off, quote-unquote, and held in check, quote-unquote, is uparujjati, which is virtually identical in meaning to nirujjati, the verb derived from Nirodha, so that Niroda means cessation or ending, and it comes from the verb, or is related to the verb, nirujjati, to, to cease or to, to end. Customarily, it is translated as cessation, as in dukkha niroda, the cessation of suffering. In the, uh, in the above translations, it and its derivations have been variously rendered destroyed, come to cease, but also held in check. The Pali root of the word is rud, R-U-D, which not only implies to end, stop, or quench, like putting out a fire, like to quench, or quench your thirst, you know, to, to have a drink when you're thirsty, but also to hold in check as an impulsive and restless horse is reined in. The, the reins are the leather straps that, that, that are joined to the bit in the horse's mouth so, so you hold in your hands when you're controlling a horse you know, the reins kind of hold the horse's head in to slow it down and control it it's called reined in so to uh, to check your reins means to to, to tighten the 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 uh, uh the hold so the horse isn't sort of running freely <clears throat> thus there is a breadth of meaning in these key terms of the last two lines of the, uh, of the verses, which both end these, um, uh, the end of the Kevada Sutta, that is easy to miss in the English. Perhaps the best way of paraphrasing them is to say that when the dualistic discriminative process is checked, then the thingness, the solid externality of the world, and the meanness of the mind, are seen as essentially insubstantial. There is no footing for the apparent independent existence of mental or material objects or an independent subject. So there's, so there's no footing in that awakened uh, uh, knowing, that awakened awareness, for uh, a me who's the experiencer or a that which is being experienced. There's no footing for the apparent independent existence of a mental uh, of mental or material objects or an independent subject. That makes sense. Okay. So here are some words from an eminent Buddhist scholar of Thailand to help further clarify the meaning of this term. So this is I, th I feel is a really helpful passage. This is from the 
the book Dependent Origination by Venerable Payuto, who's one of the most eminent uh, scholar and meditator monks in Thailand. Um, he's very, uh, very uh, unwell, unhealthy, but he still manages to produce great works despite his uh, health difficulties. He just got given a title and uh, made into one of the most sort of, high-ranking monks in Thailand. He came out of the hospital to receive his title and went back into hospital again. So he's... But also Ajahn Jayasara was just, uh, he's been a, a close friend and student of his, and they, uh, his main illness uh, is to do with his lungs, his breathing, and so they created a little um, hermitage for him out uh, in the area of Thailand where Ajahn Jayasara lives, which is sort of way out in the countryside, and the air is a lot fresher there. And um, so that the... <coughs> the um, the the um, idea was for, for, to give him a, a, a retreat place, but uh, and so they were going to um, yeah, offer that to him as a a place where he could he could uh, have a bit more solitude and a bit more support for his well-being. But um, he wasn't well enough to actually. When they made they were when I was there in December, they were going to be making the offering of these these kuti and a, one for an attendant, um, but. Um, he wasn't well enough to come to the ceremony to receive it. So, uh, <clears throat> he's a, he's quite um, sort of remarkable in his uh, in his skill in uh, and knowledge in practice. And Ajahn Jayasara was saying that um, when they were wanting to build these kutis for him, he really insisted. They had to they had to kind of uh, threaten him that it couldn't be. Um, Less than eight, so eight foot by four foot. He wanted to have it as a kind of this tiny little space, and they said, "No, it's got to be at least like three meters by two. And he, and he was, "Well, that's a bit big. It's a bit big." And, and they said, "Look, look, you're a, you're going to be made a somdet. You know, like you're one of the most high-ranking monks in Thailand. Your health is terrible. You've got to at least be, have enough space in there so your attendant can come in and help look after you. You know, so can we at least make it like?" Uh, you know, if possible, you know, more than uh, say four meters long and three meters wide. No, 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 it's too big. It's too big. It's not very big for a for a kuti. It's smaller than mine. <laughs> yeah, but uh, he uh, also he uh, uh, he wrote this this uh, tome, um, which is now the reference book for for Buddhist teachings in Thailand, which is called Buddha Dhamma. Which is just, they've just finished translating it, or the whole thing into English. The ex Ajahn Suryo just completed the translation. So that's all in English now, soon to be printed. And he used to use that as his pillow. That was, that was his, that was, that's what he slept on at night, it was Buddha Dhamma. So uh, he was not one who thinks, well, I'm a scholar, and yeah, I'm not really an ascetic or a meditator. He's, Ajahn Jayasara was saying, well, he's, he's not known as an ascetic forest monk, but he's, his lifestyle is actually much more modest and uh, abstemious, simple and uh, humble than many so-called ascetic forest monks. So anyway, uh, to carry on with this, and this, this is from uh, 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 his book, Dependent Origination, and it's a very, very helpful uh, note about the word nirota. So it's from a section called A Problem with the Word Nirota. The word nirota has been translated as cessation, quote unquote, for so long that it, that it has become standard practice. And any deviation from it leads to queries, questions. Even in this book, Dependent Origination, 
I have opted for this standard translation for the sake of convenience and to avoid confusing it for other Pali terms, and part from lack of a better word. In fact, however, this rendering of the word nirodha as ceased can in many instances be a misrendering of the text. Generally speaking, the word cease, quote-unquote, means to do away with something that has already arisen, or the stopping of something which has already begun. However, Nirodha, in the teaching of dependent origination, as also in Dukkha Nirodha, the third of the Noble Truths, means the non-arising or non-existence of something because the cause of its arising is done away with. For example, the phrase, when avicca is Nirodha, Sankara are also Nirodha, which is, also, uh, which is usually taken to mean, with the cessation of ignorance, volitional impulses cease, in fact means, so that's in part of the dependent origination teachings, starts off avicca pachaya sankara, sankara pachaya vinyana. So, uh, it in fact means that, quote, when there is no ignorance or no arising of ignorance, or when there is no longer any problem with ignorance, there are no volitional impulses. Volitional impulses do not arise. Or there is no longer any problem from volitional impulses. It doesn't mean that ignorance already arisen must be done away with before the volitional impulses which have already arisen will also be done away with. Can you follow that? So the, 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 the Pali is avicca pachaya sankara uh, and then uh, 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 ignorance conditions formations and then in the second part it says avijaya toeva asesa viraka nirodha sankara nirodho sankara nirodha uh, <coughs> and that uh, is what he's referring to here so, so it's really helpful again this is one of those those passages to go to and, and read it again and think now, do I really understand that because it, it makes a huge difference uh, and makes much more sense of that the cessation part of the dependent origination teachings. So it means that, quote, when there is no ignorance, or no arising of ignorance, or when there are, is no longer any problem with ignorance, there are no volitional impulses. Volitional impulses do not arise, or there is no longer any problem from volitional impulses. It does not mean that ignorance already arisen must be done away with before the volitional impulses which have already arisen will also be done away with. When Niroda should be rendered as cessation is when it is used in reference to the natural way of things or the nature of compounded things. In this sense, it's a synonym for the words bhanga, breaking up, anicca, transient, khaya, cessation, or vaya, decay. For example, in the Pali it's given imanko bhikave tiso vedana anicca sankata Monks, these three kinds of feeling are naturally impermanent, compounded, dependently arisen, transient, subject to decay, dissolution, fading and cessation. All of the factors occurring in the dependent origination cycle have the same nature. In this instance, the meaning is all conditioned things, sankhara, having arisen, must inevitably decay and fade according to supporting factors. There's no need to try to stop them. They cease of themselves.
Here the intention is to describe a natural condition which, in terms of practice, simply means that which arises can be done away with. As for Niroda in the Third Noble Truth, or the dependent origination cycle in cessation mode, so the second half of uh, the dependent origination cycle, although it also describes a natural process, its emphasis is on practical considerations. It is translated in two ways in the Visuddhimagga. One way traces the etymology to ni, without, and rodha, a prison, confine, obstacle, wall, impediment, thus rendering the meaning as without impediment, free of confinement. This is explained as free of impediments, that is, free of the confinement of samsara. Another definition traces the origin to anupada, meaning not arising, and goes on to say, Niroda here does not mean hunger, breaking up and dissolution. Therefore, translating Niroda as cessation, quote unquote, although not entirely wrong, is nevertheless not entirely accurate. On the other hand, there is no other word which comes so close to the essential meaning as cessation. However, we should understand what is meant by the term in this context. The dependent origination cycle in its cessation mode might be better rendered as being free of ignorance, there is freedom from volitional impulses. Or, when ignorance is gone, volitional impulses are gone. Or, when ignorance ceases to give fruit, volitional impulses cease to give fruit. Or, when ignorance is no longer a problem, volitional impulses are no longer a problem. He's very thorough in his explanations. <laughs> Famously thorough in his explanations. Even in the forward mode, there are some problems with definitions. The meanings of many of the Pali terms are too broad to be translated into any single English word. For, for instance, avicca pacheya sankara also means when ignorance is like this, volitional impulses are like this. Volitional impulses being this way, consciousness is like this. Consciousness being this way, body and mind like this. So that's uh, from his uh, book Dependent Origination which is uh, highly recommended and um, uh, I would uh, um, uh, I was very glad to get the permission to uh, reprint this uh, whole section here because I feel that that helps um, also inform that idea of consciousness ceasing like cessation of consciousness that means there's, there's no longer any problem with consciousness or there's a uh, the uh, that, that it's a um, uh, it's a different way of holding it and uh, a sense of de-reifying it, not making it into a real separate uh, actual thing. Although spiritual parallels can sometimes be deceptive, it is tempting at this point, at least to me, since I was writing this, <laughs> to make a comparison between two different spiritual traditions. This is due both to the, to the significance and usefulness of the phrase vinyanang anidasanang anantang sabatopabang as a tool for Dhamma practice as well as the potency and popularity of the Tibetan Buddhist practice of Dzogchen, natural great perfection, and the popularity of that in the West these days. In listening to Dzogchen teachings, it's clear that the aim of the practice is to establish the mind in, quote, innate self-arising rigpa, unquote. 
This latter word, Rigpa, for which the Sanskrit is Vidya and the Pali is Vijja, transcendent knowing, is variously translated as non-dual awareness, innate wisdom, pure presence, primordial being. That's the, the, of the common translations of Rigpa. So, but it is a Tibetan word for vijja, so that like, avijja ignorance is uh, vijja knowing. So the avijja is the opposite of vijja. So rigpa is the Tibetan word for knowing or awareness. <coughs> Marigpa means uh, 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 ignorance, avijja. So they're, they're sort of direct um, and complete parallels. Again and again, its principal qualities are enumerated. Empty of essence, this is the qualities of rigpa. Empty of essence, cognizant in nature, unconfined in capacity. Or, using a different translation of these terms, emptiness, knowing, and lucidity, or clarity. Again, the translations into English vary, but on consideration, the resemblance to the adjectives describing the mind, quote, where long and short, uh, uh, etc., can find no footing, is striking. To spell it out, vinyanang uh, equals cognizant in nature, Anidasanang equals empty. Anantang equals unconfined in capacity. Sabatopabang equals lucid in quality. Whether or not this is a valid alignment of principles is for the individual to discover. That was very neat footwork, if I say so myself. Well, you know, when uh, the, uh, people form very strong emotionally charged opinions about different traditions, different expressions. And say, How dare you consider that? This is totally ridiculous. How can your vijja be anything to do with Rigpa? Yeah. I, I co-led a, a retreat with Sokni Rinpoche, which was a sort of Zogchen Theravada retreat, which is probably the... We reckon it was probably the first time that, that uh, um, you had a uh, Theravada uh, combination Vajrayana retreat in, since uh, Nalanda University got trashed in in India a thousand years ago possibly uh, but it was great fun was, uh, uh, we had a great time together but some of our dear students had a bit of trouble with each other because they had this uh, this huge dhamma seat this sort of vajra throne covered in brocade and you know so we have a dhamma seat you know when we give teachings that, uh, and uh, sometimes in Thailand they're quite they're sort of elaborate and, and decorated and even though he's he's a layman you know he has a uh, uh, a wife and children. He's a he's a he's a lama, but he's a, a layperson. He's a householder, <coughs> um, and so um, I just took it for granted that if, uh, that there was the dharma seat, and this time to give dharma teachings, you just get up on the dharma seat and give the teachings. Yes, precisely. So some of uh, the Rinpoche's uh, disciples are like that monk. Is he, he's climbing on the dharma seat on the Vajra throne. You can't get up there. Who do you think you are? I said, well, I think I'm the monk. You know. and so I'm giving the Dhamma teachings, so this is where you give teachings from. So I'm uh, exaggerating a little bit, but not not a lot. <laughs> Unfortunately, not a, <coughs> not a lot. Uh, so some people were sort of fuming with my audacity. But then others, at the other end of the scale, were like, well, he's a layman. Why, why is he given so much sort of uh, or why all the brocade? And yeah, and he shouldn't be sort of sitting out there next to the monk. He's only a layperson, after all. So it was a great, uh, it was great fun, sort of 
playing with these different religious uh, forms. And it was an exercise in non-attachment to conventions and rites and rituals. It was a sort of silapata paramasa attachment exercise. And uh, I, I was—I didn't realize because uh, I, I had discussed the retreat with Rinpoche and the people who put it on. We thought this is a great idea. We're good friends. We've known each other a long time, and the teachings are very compatible. Great. What could go wrong? <laughs> and so I didn't have a clue that there were these feelings in the room. So it was, it was um, about 70 percent were the um, with the regular um, sort of spirit rock um, vipassana students, and about forty percent, thirty percent were Rinpoche's regular students. So it wasn't until I went into one of the interview groups and said, "Oh, how's the retreat going?" And there was this kind of, you know, "How dare you? Who do you think you are?" Kind of. Oh, well, that's interesting. That's not very non-dualistic. <laughs> Sounds. There's a feeling, a decidedly dualistic feel to that emotional current. So I endeavoured not to give it a place to land, but, uh, but it was a, it was a, it was very enjoyable. But anyway, it was during the, those kind of times, and and then being able to talk with with uh, Rinpoche, who's a, a accomplished Dzogchen uh, master, and also the translators who work with him. His father was a very well known um, and highly regarded uh, teacher as well, uh, Toku Urgyen. It was mostly taught in, in uh, Kathmandu in Nepal, um, but also in the West to a certain degree. And his three of his brothers are also meditation teachers. And um, <clears throat> so it was through listening to him and then and also chatting with the, with the translators and then reflecting on these teachings. And there was a, a tremendous similarity to. Um, uh, this particular area of the teachings and how their standard description of the nature of Rigpa is, matches very, very closely. But knowing the strength of feeling and partisan quality, that <laughs> there's a, a sense of, of um, allegiance to your own particular group, the sort of A team, the B team, the red team, blue team, red team, blue team, uh, northern, southern, yeah, uh, <coughs> Vajra, Theravada, yeah. That uh, I um, thought carefully about how to phrase this particular um, uh, these kind of passages, where also I draw upon other uh, teachings or make different references. That rather than saying this is true and this is good and you should believe it, rather well here is an interesting um, expression or you know, make of it what you will, or apply it for yourself and see whether it's true and find out whether this has any value or not. Um, I had a, a, an interest in a related experience. Uh, that another um, uh, Theravada, or fellow Theravada forest monk, um, contacted me and said, "Oh, you've been spending quite a bit of time with these Tibetan masters, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of interested in what Dzogchen teachings, are, are, what they're like, and how they align with with the forest ajans. You know, would you like to to sort of, um, give me a, an outline of how you feel that the teachings line up, and so I said, "Sure, I was, yeah, happy to do that." So I spent a bit of time putting that together, and that also informed some of the sections of this book. and And so it was like a twelve ended up being a twelve page letter that was with quotations and passages from Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Mahabur, and Ajahn Man, and these sort of bits from Dzogchen teachings. And so then, and so I thought, oh, it's, kind of, I mean, it's good that he's interested, and I put a bit of effort into. To crafting it all together, 
And then I got this letter back from him that was completely trashing everything that I'd written. It was like I was, it was, I, I feel I was set up. It was a strange thing for another monk to, and maybe I, my, it's just my projection, but I felt like I was set up. You know, I can be extremely naive, painfully naive. Yeah, I'm very, I'm a very trusting kind of a person. I thought, oh, he's interested. That's nice. Okay, I'll put some effort into that. And then it was just a kind of point by point demolition of, of uh, how this is this uh, these teachings cannot possibly be aligned with the, the wisdom of the the great masters and uh, the uh, the Pali Canon, and uh, and it's sort of deluded to to, uh, to align them in that way. So. I kind of went quiet. <laughs> I, I was uh, I was kind of upset. Uh, I thought, well, I'm I'm upset enough to sit on this for a few days before I make a response. So I did. I, I just uh, eventually I wrote back saying, "Thank you for your thank you for sharing," <laughs> and didn't didn't uh, yeah didn't argue further because I thought, well, it's it's not my issue. It's if someone wants to find fault, it's their business. It's not. I don't have to give it a place to land, but it was um, it was a striking lesson, and so that even and it's one of those examples of where even though what you're talking about is extremely high-minded philosophy, you're talking about non-dualistic teachings, you're talking about refined and profound degrees of non-attachment, and yet there's this sort of you know how dare you, <laughs> who do you think you are? You know, that's wrong view, wrong view. And then it's like it's sort of the reptile brain is is engaged to defend these uh, transcendent qualities. It illustrates um, the need for interfaith between people of the same religion. Indeed, so that's uh, intrafaith, <laughs> intrafaith dialogue. So it was actually I was at this event at the House of Lords a couple of days ago. And the, uh, this, uh, there was a Christian minister who had his parish is Tower Hamlets, which is sort of a Bangladeshi enclave. And, uh, and he was saying one of the most difficult things for him in recent times is the members of the English Defence League coming with their, their crosses to, to, to protest the presence of these uh, people who don't belong in their eyes. And how he's, they're, they're ostensibly Christians and they're sort of, presenting themselves as that. And so he used that phrase, intra, intra-faith dialogue, <laughs> so to, to sit down to, with, with other apparent members of your own faith you know, that, uh, and to uh, develop a more complete understanding and respect for each other. So you know, I, 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 took, you know, I took it in good stride, but it, it's still there in my memory. And uh, I was just shocked uh, and... Uh, that I was um, sort of uh, drawn into that, but also I was quite—I'm I'm quite happy to be naive. <laughs> Don't think innocence is a bad thing, but uh, it made me a little bit more wary you know, in, uh, for future encounters. So maybe I can just sort of finish this um, this little section here. <clears throat> So to spell it out, vinyanang, cognizant in nature, anidasanang, empty, anantang, unconfined in capacity, sabato babang, lucid in quality. 
Whether or not this is a valid alignment of principles is the individual is for the individual to discover. However, as both of these teachings ostensibly point to the nature of the heart liberated from ignorance, it is illuminating that these two traditions, now so widely separated geographically, should hold such similar teachings as key distillations of their wisdom. As a final comment on this passage, Bhikkhunyananda explains it thus. And again, this is uh, from Bhikkhunyananda. This is from Concept and Reality, uh, which does quite a bit of uh, a very, very thoughtful and useful uh, explanation of this same passage. The last line of the verse stresses the fact that the four great elements do not find a footing and that name and form, quote-unquote, comprehending them, can be cut off completely in that anidasana vijnana, the non-manifestative consciousness of the arahant, by the cessation of his normal consciousness which rests on the data of sense experience. So, Chanjitapala, that's saying the same thing as you were, I think. So, the, um, so that the cessation of the normal consciousness uh, which rests on the data of sense experience. This is a corrective to that monk's notion that the four elements can cease altogether somewhere, a notion which has its roots in the popular conception of self-existing material elements. The Buddha's reformulation of the original question and this concluding line are meant to combat this wrong notion. The words of these teachings are echoed in another episode recounted in the Pali scriptures. In this passage, the Buddha is approached by a deva called Rohitasa, it seems that in former times, Rohitasa had been an accomplished yogi, a quote-unquote skywalker. Rohitasa skywalker, not Luke. But that's the word, a skywalker. Uh, who could step from the eastern to the western sea of India. He said to the Buddha, In me, Lord, there arose the wish. I will get to the end of the world by walking. I walked thus for a hundred years without sleeping and pausing only to eat and drink and answer the calls of nature. Even though I exerted myself thus for a hundred years, I did not reach the end of the world, and eventually I died on the journey. To this the Buddha replied, It's true that one cannot reach the end of the world by walking, but unless one reaches the end of the world, one will not reach the end of dukkha. It is in this fathom-long body with its perceptions and ideas that this world, its origin, its cessation, and the way leading to its cessation are to be found. One who knows the world goes to the world's end. One who lives the holy life with heart serene, they understand the world's end and do not hanker for this world or another. Both Rohitasa and the errant monk in the tale the Buddha told to Kevada have been looking in the wrong way and in the wrong place, looking for finality in samsara, which is endlessness itself. As Ajahn Chah would put it, if you're looking for security in that which is inherently insecure, if you're looking for satisfaction in that which is incapable of satisfying, you are bound to suffer. Though this um, um, come trying to get to the end of the world uh, and this teaching to Rohitasa, this is um, one of the, the most significant teachings that Bhikkhu Bodhi makes the comment in his uh, footnote to this uh, this passage, that he he feels this is the most profound uh, comment 
and the most profound utterance to be found in all human philosophy, east or west. That, uh, that uh, so he, that's and he's a very thoughtful person. He doesn't make dramatic statements um, uh, without basis. And so uh, we'll uh, we'll come back to that next time. But I just wanted to pop that in at the end because that's that same sort of looking to get to the end of the world uh, and. Uh, in the same way as that the monk was asking about the ending of the four elements and that uh, the <coughs> uh, and it's also in terms of, of practice it's really what vipassana meditation that establishing that quality of of unbiased awareness that when the mind is is receiving and knowing that the flow of of uh, perception feeling in the body thoughts ideas mental images uh, the uh, imagination, uh, states of concentration, and, and so forth. That the more, the greater that the quality of of, uh, of awareness is established in in clarity and in an unbiased receptivity, then everything that arises is known as as just the patterns of of events that are in a state of constant change that are not personal. So that in the, that anidasana vinyana that um, that that kind of giving no footing in a way that's describing the the quality of knowing of, of your own heart your own mind when the when the they uh, say that um, uh, clarity of awareness is most fully established that the whole world is flowing through the the sphere of the mind and that the um, and the insight the the vipassana the the, the sort of the the insight is that that recognition of of that. Uh, this is not me. This is not mine. This is this is just the uh, patterns of experience coming and going, and that the the uh, that quality of uh, limitlessness and radiance and spaciousness is uh, in a way describing when the in when the mind is when there's a practice uh, sort of the most full and complete practice of vipassana meditation. Then the felt experience of the mind is. Uh, anidasana is um, formless, uh, uh, anantang, limitless, sabatopabang, radiant. And uh, in, in Thai, they have this very uh, uh, helpful little, and we were talking about it in the, I think in the, um, when we were talking about the Amatadatu, the deathless element, sawang sa'a, sangop, radiant, pure, and peaceful, is the way they uh, usually often describe that in the Thai language. But mysteriously, that big hand has swung past the two. Again, it's moving towards the three, so that'll have to be enough for today. And tomorrow's a moon, a moon day, so there won't be a reading uh, tomorrow or Sunday. And then uh, there'll be two more, Monday, Tuesday, and then I go into a solo retreat uh, from the 8th through to the 28th. So... Uh, I'll just be a couple more of these till there's a, a long out breath or in breath, a pause. <laughs>